the Battle of Guagamela, 331 BC, somewhere in what is now Iraq. This is the final meeting between King Darius III of Persia and Alexander the Great of Macedon. At this moment, the son of Mr. and Mrs. the Great is in a bit of a pickle. In the heat of battle, Alexander hasn't noticed an elephant in the service of the Persian army is charging his way. That's when it happened. As if from nowhere, Alexander's dog Peritas leaped up and champed his teeth on the elephant's lower lip, slowing the beast enough for Alexander to leap to safety. Alas, Peritas did not survive the ensuing struggle. In sacrificing himself, the dog had saved both Alexander and the future of Western civilization. Alexander later named a city in honor of his beloved dog. It was heroic. It was poignant. And it's almost certainly bullshit. Historians will tell you, for all of Alexander's accomplishments, he had a self-promotion streak that made Phineas T. Barnum look like the Dalai Lama. Just look at any statue of the guy, tall, handsome, and literally well-chiseled. Yet several accounts suggest he was a diminutive and stocky guy with one of those swipe-left kind of faces. While the legend of Peritas has no foundation, dogs have indeed been an oft-forgotten part of wars for as long as they've raged. And as war has changed, so has the role dogs play in it. I'm Bud Bacone. Together we're about to tour the story of canine warriors and how after thousands of years they're only starting to get the respect and attention they've so richly earned. So... Cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. <laughs> Not bad, but we gotta work on your game face. Tales from the AKC Archives. As many a rival army discovered the hard way, Alexander the Great had skills, including dog skills. He kept many dogs, including Salukis, swift, agile members of the hound group and also a favorite of Egyptian pharaohs. Alexander knew that augmenting his human troops with big, nasty-looking canines could do wonders to strengthen his hand. He was known to have crossed the giant Macedonian and Epirian war dogs with the short-haired Indian dogs to create a breed called the Molossus. The result was a large, powerful dog whose very appearance inspired even war-hardened adversaries to evacuate their lower intestines. Well, as they used to joke in ancient Greece, etan e epitas. <laughs> Moving on. Later, when the Romans overtook Greece, as Romans do, they brought back all manner of Greek treasures. Baklava, Retsina, early Nanomascori records. 
and molasses dogs. Throughout the Roman era, using dogs in combat was part of the Roman playbook. In fact, I happen to have a copy of the ancient Roman playbook handy. Uh, let me read you a passage. Um, here. Lorum ipsum dolor sit amet con secitor ad ipsin illi. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that's Latin. Okay, well, uh, loosely translated, uh, it describes how Romans refined their own breeds of war dogs, combining the traits of molasses dogs with other breeds, including the large mastiffs encountered when they invaded England. One resulting breed was the Connie Corso, slightly smaller but no less terrifying than its relative, the Neapolitan Mastiff. Both would become famous as periphery. With buckets of flaming oil attached to their backs, they would charge fearlessly into enemy lines. See previous re intestinal evacuation. Another important byproduct of the Roman army's penchant for dominating the known world was the pollination of dog breeds, particularly through Europe. We've mentioned in the past how today's greater Swiss mountain dog is descended from dogs brought over the Alps by the legions of Julius Caesar. But if there's a poster dog for a breed made by invading armies, that's her, the Border Collie. Here's the story. Invading Britain had been on Rome's laundry list for some time until the year 43, when it finally happened. Roman occupation would influence every aspect of British life, including dog breeding. As occupying legions brought their own livestock, they also brought herding dogs. These large, heavy Roman dogs became a fixture on the British landscape for three centuries. And as the sun began to set on the Roman Empire, Viking raiders took over as Britain's occupying force. With them came their own brand of herding dogs, small, spitz-type herders, ancestors of such contemporary breeds as the Icelandic sheepdog. We had mentioned in the past that uh, corgis probably came over with the Vikings. Crosses between the old Roman dogs and the Viking spitzes produced compact, agile herders. They were well-equipped to work in the hilly, rocky highlands of Scotland and Wales. And from those crosses came today's Border Collie, a rock star from a sort of British invasion done in reverse. For centuries, wars came and went, as wars do. And through many of them, dogs played various roles, from combat to carting to carrying messages as they did for the Romans and Greeks. Celts and Gauls, Attila the Hun, Henry VIII and his daughter Elizabeth I all drafted dogs into their armies. And while wars don't change, warfare does. By the days of Napoleon and Wellington, with their parade grounds, columns and squares, and marching a line brand of war, combatant dogs began to vanish. Battle maneuvers became branded and choreographed. Wars came with colorful uniforms and banners, even rules. Unbroken lines of thousands of musket-wielding infantry in lockstep were all that was needed to terrify the enemy. Mastiffs carrying buckets of flaming oil? Sorry, you need not apply. By the mid-1800s, a new trend emerged. 
The desire to breed dogs for wartime activities was all the rage in Germany, enough so that in 1884, the German army established the first military school for training war dogs, and in 1885, it released the first training manual for military war dogs. How they turned the pages without opposable thumbs remains a mystery. Let's move ahead to 1908. That year, the United States would elect a new president, and, spoiler, it wasn't William Jennings Bryan. I am willing to admit that war has accomplished much in the progress of the world. For the third time in four elections, Bryan won the nomination and lost the election. This time, to that fella, William Howard Taft. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way. Few Americans might have noted the news from the American Kennel Club in New York that two relatively new breeds had been recognized. They were the Doberman Pinscher and the German Shepherd Dog. And through the 20th century, they would all but reinvent the role of dogs in war. It would begin with the Guns of August, with the brutal, filthy, maddening trench warfare of World War I. Dogs were pressed into service, carting and running messages. The reliable data is scarce. It's reckoned the Germans employed some 28,000 dogs in the Great War, mostly German shepherd dogs for whom the British preferred the less Teutonic name, Alsatians. Of those, some 4,000 served as Red Cross dogs and 4,000 as messengers and patrol dogs. Messengers would typically cover one to three miles and might carry homing pigeons to the front to make the return trip. Telegraph dogs might carry a reel of wire unwinding as they ran, and some dogs wore specially made gas masks. As war tactics and technologies became more complex, the skills employed among war dogs became more diverse. In 1918 came the armistice. The war to end all wars ended. The bloody price paid would yield generations, perhaps centuries, of peace. That is until this guy showed up. Right about the time Hitler rose to power in the early 1930s, Captain Max von Steffenitz was perfecting the German Shepherd Dog. To his chagrin, Germany's Shepherd Dog Society, the SV, was soon overrun by Nazis and kennels were seized, beginning with those owned by Jewish breeders. Endowed with more party connections than dog smarts, Nazi operatives imposed their own breeding theories and Hitler's government would help itself to thousands of dogs, most of them German shepherds, Dobermans and boxers. Thousands of dogs would die at the front. During this time, Ernest Loeb, later an esteemed AKC judge, was banished from the SV because he was Jewish. Forbidden to enter competitions in his own country, Loeb emigrated to New York. There, his German shepherd dog, Brando von Heidelbeerberg, won best of breed at the Westminster Dog Show. Loeb and his dog were the toast of America's dog world. Meanwhile, stateside, Uncle Sam was calling, and he wasn't just calling bipeds. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live 
in infamy. Get on, get on, get on the road to victory. Get off, get off, get off the rusty, dusty, and get on. Soon after the attack on Pearl Harbor, journalist Roland Kilburn got a call from Mrs. Arlene Erlinger, a well-known breeder of poodles. Dogs, she told him, must play a part in this thing. From that call was born Dogs for Defense, or DFD, with its slogan, Give Dogs and Dollars. The who's who of dogdom pitched in. Blanche Saunders, a pioneer of American dog obedience training, left her kennel to help train sentry dogs for installations critical to the war effort. Hollywood's Carl Spitz, whose Cairn Terrier became Toto in The Wizard of Oz, trained dogs for the Marines. Backed by leading breeders in the AKC, DFD would contribute 17,000 dogs to the war effort, technically on loan for the duration. The question was, which ones? At first, 32 breeds and crosses were considered for service. In time, the number was trimmed to just five. German Shepherds, Belgian Shepherds, Doberman Pinschers, medium-coated Collies, and giant schnauzers. And it was about that time that the Doberman Pinscher Club of America became a voluntary recruiter of the Marine Devil Dog. In 1943, Marine Private First Class Bob Forsyth was fixing to ship out with a rifle platoon when he ran into a family friend, Master Sergeant Tom Gately, who asked if he'd like to join his war dogs unit. Forsyth, who began working in kennels at the age of six or seven, gladly agreed. Also enlisting that year was Captain William W. Putney, DVM, who became chief veterinarian and commander of the 3rd War Dog Platoon. For 17 days without let-up, American planes and ships assault the island of Guam and the Marianas. 5,000 miles from... So began Private Forsyth's tour with the storied Devil Dogs unit. 24 dogs, three German Shepherds, and the rest Dobermans. He and his partner, Liney, would serve together in Bougainville, Guam, and Okinawa. Commanding officers who at first balked at the idea became instant converts. In the stifling, dense jungles of the South Pacific, these Dobermans became ideal companions on patrol. Forsyth recalled that Liney saved his life on two patrols. Once, Creeping through heavy jungle growth, soldier and dog came up behind two enemy machine gun nests. He let me know they were there, said Forsyth. They never got a chance to get a round off. The dogs were trained for both vocal commands and hand signals. A key to their success was training based on a gentle approach as opposed to the once popular fear method. The military dropped harsher tactics to avoid stressing the dogs who were needed to be confident, unflinching, and always willing to work. The dogs were given ranks, some in time would outrank their handlers, and their dog tag was a tattoo on the ear. Dobermans were ideal scouts because of their ability to distinguish among various scents. They could detect body odor 100 yards away and would alert troops to soldiers lurking in pillboxes, caves, and foxholes. There was one account of a Doberman alerted to troops a half mile away during maneuvers at training camp. Dogs also helped solve one of the many deadly problems of prolonged jungle warfare, sleep deprivation. 
fatigued and stressed, sleepless troops were slower to react. Their judgment was impaired, and they had hair-trigger tempers. One night, it's recalled, the battalion fired 3,800 rounds of ammo. The casualties? Two water buffalo, four coconut trees, and not one single enemy. That's where the canine unit came in. A string was then attached to one dog and strung from man to man along the line of foxholes. If the dog was alerted, the movement would travel down the line, waking the soldiers. With the dog as sentry, the men got desperately needed sleep. Decades later, as a distinguished handler of show dogs, Bob Forsyth would recall the bravest dog he ever saw in combat, a German shepherd named Caesar. While bringing back a message through enemy territory, Caesar got through despite being shot several times. Just a few of many wounds he would sustain in battle. Once on a patrol, Caesar charged an enemy soldier in defense of his handler. Though he wasn't trained to charge the enemy, he was shot twice, one bullet lodging close to his heart. Caesar would carry that bullet through the rest of his life. This heroism, these bonds between dogs and their soldiers echo through thousands of moments in theaters of war all around the planet. And with it, stories of pain and loss that transcend words. In July 1945, the AKC Gazette received a letter from one Clayton Going capturing what he described as the complete mutual devotion, confidence, and understanding that exists between America's war dogs and their handlers. He offered the text of a letter home from Marine PFC Robert E. Lansley of Syracuse, New York. Private Lansley was serving with a Doberman named Andy on Bougainville. There, Andy's keen nose had repeatedly saved Marines from certain death. The letter read, Dear Mom, my heart is wide open. My Andy is gone. The darn mutt got out, and as he couldn't hear because of the deafness brought on by the shelling, he was run over by a truck. I got the worst order the Marine Corps had ever imposed on me. I had to destroy my Andy. To think, Mom dear, he saved my life, and I had to take his. No matter how many dogs they give me, I'll never have the faith in them that I had in Andy. It seems that he was my other self. Going added this postscript. Bob and Andy are now together again. The Marine was later killed in action, fighting on the island highway to Tokyo. Following the war, the veteran dogs were returned and retrained. Many handlers asked permission to keep the dogs with whom they'd so closely bonded, few could refuse. Will there be peace or war? The fateful question posed by Warren Austin, head of the United States delegation to the UN, set the mood of the world at the century's halfway mark. Five years later, American troops were in Korea. Despite their success in night patrols, dogs played a much smaller part. Only one Army Scout dog platoon saw service, while the Air Force found duty for dogs patrolling airbase perimeters and guarding supply areas.
A decade later, fighting in the thick jungles of Vietnam increased the need for military working dogs, handling a diverse range of tasks. They served as scouts, sentries, and joined patrols, alerting troops to many enemy ambushes. They also worked at mine and booby trap detection. As one Marine Lance Corporal would recall, Charlie hated our dogs. When mortars hit, they went first for the ammo tent and second for the dog kennel. It's a testament to both that the enemy put a bounty on both dogs and their military handlers. Some 4,000 dogs served in Vietnam, with 350 killed in action. Of 9,000 military handlers, 263 were killed. Many more dogs and handlers were wounded. Writing in the New York Times years later, a former military dog handler suggested that without dogs, there would be 10,000 additional names on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. In those hectic days when the U.S. left Vietnam, the order came through. Military working dogs were classified as surplus equipment to be left behind. Desperate handlers offering to pay their dogs flight home were refused. With no one trained to handle them, many of the dogs were euthanized. It's estimated that of the 4,000 dogs who served, fewer than 200 returned to the United States. Devastated, former military dog handlers spoke out. In 2000, Congress passed Robbie's Law, allowing for the adoption of former military dogs by law enforcement agencies, former handlers, and others capable of caring for them. years before that, in 1994, one of the champions of that legislation had stood in a clearing back on Guam on the 50th anniversary of the island's liberation. He was William Putney, the former captain and vet who'd once commanded the third war dog platoon on that island. It was a cemetery Putney had helped establish to memorialize the marine war dogs who died there and their part in saving hundreds of lives. The now familiar cycle of extraordinary canine heroism would begin anew on a bright, warm September day in 2001, a story deserving of its own telling on another day. After tens of thousands of years, the principle of war hasn't changed. And as with every chapter in the human story, dogs have been key players. As the machinations and tactics of war have become more complex, the more humans draw on the diverse range of skills bred into dogs over the generations and often over centuries. Unchanging through it all is the courage, the unflagging determination, the willingness to work that distinguishes the countless thousands of dogs who have served and continue to serve in war. Semper Fi. Down and Back, Tales from the AKC Archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow us on Instagram at American Kennel Club, on Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers, and let us know what you thought of the show. Founded many, many dog years ago, AKC is the recognized and trusted expert in breed, health, and training info. 
AKC is all about responsible dog ownership and dedicated to advancing dog sports. No humans were harmed while making this show.